Hello, bike friends, and welcome to the Bikes for Death podcast. As always, my name is Patrick, and I am your host. And today's episode is with Jeff Kirkove. Could you imagine doing the Colorado Trail six times and DNFing every single time only to come back for a seventh time and finally finish? Well, that's exactly what Jeff did. His journey started in 2007 when he tackled the Colorado Trail Race as his first bikepacking event. And obviously he didn't finish, but what's amazing about this is how he never quit. He never gave up. He never lost hope or determination or grit or motivation or anything else that he needed, whatever he needed to get him to finally finish the Colorado Trail. It was really cool to hear his story. I have a lot of respect for him just because of that. I mean, what else do you need to know about a person if they're willing to fail at something? I hate to say fail because he ultimately completed it, but until he completed it, I mean, he kept... And and also, if you talk about failure, it's like, man, there's so many variables and so many things that could go wrong. Is it like a personal failure, a mechanical failure? So I don't really like the word failure, but let's just say he didn't finish six times and then to come back a seventh time and and do it is just a, a truly incredible story. My hat's off to him. And I want to give a special shout out to Lee Bo, who also just completed the Colorado Trail Race. But she sent me an email saying that she listened to the Bikes or Death podcast quite a bit on her run. So I appreciate that. It's always cool to hear that the podcast is helping people get through their rides or races or whatever it may be. But she was the one who requested this interview. And I'm glad she did because Jeff is somebody who actually helped me out with a bikepacking trip in Colorado way back in 2018. So it was nice to hop on Zoom with him, get a chance to thank him in person, and also hear this incredible story. So thank you, Lee, and thank you, Jeff, for coming on the podcast and sharing your story. And before we get to the episode, why don't we thank the people who made this episode possible, starting with the newest patrons. So this week's newest sustaining members of the podcast are Anders Hedgegaard, Annie Bellotta, Angela Kremers, Reese Stanley, Reed McCallson, Bill Diedrich, Adam Murphy, Hans Noodleman, Indiana Schultz. Shout out to Indiana Schultz. He was on episode four and five of this podcast way, way back in the day. He's a good dude. And if you haven't listened to those episodes with him, I highly recommend it. Thanks for coming aboard, Indy. And we also have Minnie Irizarry. Thank all of you so much and everybody who helps to support this podcast. Everything helps. And if you would like to support the show, you can find out how over at patreon.com forward slash bikes or death. Now, this week's episode is also brought to us by my friends over at Kuad Racks. And Tom is here to tell us all about their new rack, the Piston Pro X. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's Oh, man, it's, I'm stoked that you're here. I want to hear all about the new rack. The Piston Pro X, yes. It's a beautiful piece of gear uh, from, you know, finishes to materials to little extra things like, uh, you know, a Kashima-coated piston to open up the arms. I mean, it's an amazing thing. I think my favorite feature might be the integrated light. 
Yeah, those are pretty cool. So uh, there are LED lights on the outer trays of the rack, and they plug right into your trailer lights. So they give you brake, turn signal, uh, running lights, uh, the whole thing. It's it's a great safety feature, but it also looks really great on the back of a vehicle, you know, with these LED lights lit up. So yeah, it's it's a pretty cool. And those lights, I believe, work whether the bike rack is down or up? Correct, they do. So they sit on this angle or on this chamfer on the end of the tray. So the lights, you can see them when you're towing bikes and also when the rack is stowed up next to the vehicle. I really like that. I mean, so often I'm sure a lot of cyclists have been driving down the road and had to stop real quickly and they go, oh no, my bikes, you know, are sitting right back there. So, (laughs) you know, having some brake lights on the end of your rack is just another safety feature to protect your bike. It's a great safety feature and they, everything connects really easily on the rack as well. So when, when you buy this rack and you assemble it, you're not connecting wires or, you know, having to really put those things together. Everything connects automatically and it's a really seamless finish. Well, you're right. It does look absolutely beautiful. If people want to learn more about it, check out the pictures for themselves, take a look. Where can they go to find out more information? Definitely. Well, our website's a great resource at kuat.com. You're also welcome to uh, call our customer service team here in Springfield, Missouri. They are some of the best in the business. Um, I mean, they will melt your face off. I love that. And I will echo that. That's one reason I love being partnered with Kuat is not only great products, but seriously, the customer service is out of this world. I like what you said. It's melt your face off. So go check that out, folks. Tom, thanks for coming on the podcast, talking about racks, and hope to have you back on again soon. Talk more Kuat. Yeah. Thanks, Patrick. My pleasure. All right, and today's episode is also brought to us by Quadlock. And I got my friend Ben Moore here, all the way from the UK, to tell us some of the things he likes about Quadlock. Yeah, thanks for having me, Patrick. Tell me real quick, what kind of riding are you into? You're a legit sponsored racer, right? Yeah, I'm technically a downhill mountain bike professional, I suppose (laughs) that categorizes it. Yeah, man, that's awesome. So, I mean, if there's one thing you know, you know it's you're going to wreck, you need to protect your phone, you need to have your phone on you to record your segments and everything. And also, you mentioned that you've been using Quadlock for four years now. So, what are some of the things that you found helpful when you're riding your bike and using Quadlock? Yeah, I mean, Quadlock for me is one of the things that's um, it's more of a training tool, but I actually use it every day uh, i mean whether that's in the in the car which i spent a lot of time in on the roads using it for navigation i prefer the the google maps on there and then if i was to put that into a bike scenario it's actually even if i wasn't training just to ride to the shops or if i'm in a city where i've not been before i've got my quad lock on my bars and i can go right where's the restaurant where am i going and i can just follow it on there i don't have to stop every two minutes on each block to work out oh actually i need to turn left there and i think that's where the real beauty of this product lies and then when you take it off of your bike you end up with this really cool phone case that's actually a really probably one of the best phone cases on the market and it just so happens that it's got this locking system on the back that you can then use on your bike in your car running kayaking whatever you want to do yeah, I've bought into their whole ecosystem. I got it on all my bikes. I got, you know, the desk one that holds it on my desk and charges it. I've got the one in my van. 
Um, you know, I, I got it all. Well, listen, dude, if people want to follow along some of your racing and what you got going on, where can people uh, follow you at? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've, over the years, I've done a lot on Facebook. So every race I do, you end up with a race run on Facebook and it's normally a minute or two long. So it's not, you know, it doesn't ever get too boring for the viewers. So yeah, find us on Facebook. Um, also got an Instagram and then uh, I'm flicking my way through that as uh, as time goes on. All right. Sounds good, man. Well, thanks for coming on and chatting Quadlock with us today. Thanks for having me, Patrick. All the best. All right. Take care, buddy. Cheers. All right. Thank you, Tom from Kuat and Ben with Quadlock. I appreciate these sponsors so much and everybody who helps to support and sustain this show. If you like this podcast, be sure to check out the sponsors that make this show possible. And if you buy something, let them know that you heard it over on Bikes or Death. I hope y'all are enjoying these little mini episodes at the beginning of the real podcast. I think it's a great way to get some outside perspective and mix it up a little bit. And I really appreciate Tom and Ben coming on the podcast today to share with us. Now, the moment that you've all been waiting for. It is time for Miles Arbor to take it away with the Bikes or Death theme song. You load up your bike, you ride away from home. You could be with your friends or you could be alone. You ride for a day or maybe more. You just love being in the great outdoors. Everything you need is strapped to your bars, including that new pillow you got from Santa Claus. And then you think, oh shit to yourself. You left that super lightweight tent on the living room shelf. Bikes. All right. Well, everybody, today we've got Jeff Kirkhove here. Well, first off, man, thanks for uh, coming on the podcast. And where are you calling in from? Thanks for having me. I am calling in from Buena Vista, Colorado, which is home. Specifically from what, the the floor of your, uh, yeah, of your I'm home? I'm actually sitting on the floor <laughs> of my little townhouse. Just, you know, I've been, I've been sitting at a bench working, you know, doing Ergon stuff for the last like four or five hours. And it's just like, I, just want to get low and get my feet out in front of me. <laughs> yeah. Change the positions up. I didn't know if you were um, trying to train yourself to be harder. You're like, I don't need furniture. I sleep no, no. on the floor. <laughs> it's so funny. It's like, yes, I do have furniture, but it's probably I sit on the floor or lay on the floor more often than not. Well, you know, they talk about people that go to jail and stuff and they can't sleep in a bed, right? They can't sleep right. in a comfortable bed because they're just so used to it. And so <laughs> I don't funny. know, maybe you spend so much time outdoors. You're just like... It's too comfortable. I don't know. It's pretty weird. Everything's too comfortable now. Right, right. Normalized difficult. <laughs> yeah, why not? So uh, you brought up uh, Ergon. Um, right. I know you work for Ergon. I'd love to hear what you do there. And how long have you worked there? Is that what brought you to Colorado? No. So I've been with Ergon now for f- like 14 years, I believe it is. Um, I was basically one of two guys that helped kind of launch the brand in the United States back in like, 2007. I was actually living in Iowa at the time. I kind of fell into the job. I was doing 24-hour solo racing and 12-hour solo races and was having a problem with my wrists. Eventually found Ergon as a product, started using it. And then like my relationship through racing and kind of the, the distributor at the time in the United States basically pitched my name to the owner in Germany and was like, this is a guy that you need to bring on board when you bring this brand to the United States. 
And the rest is essentially history. With that, with that job basically came the freedom to work from home. So it's like I was still living in Iowa. I got the job. I probably lived in Iowa for maybe like a year and then decided that I could pretty much, they're like, you can live wherever you want as long as you have internet access and an airport. So then I moved to Fort Collins, spent time there, then up into the Vail Valley and now here into Buena Vista. So basically been in Colorado since 2007. What was that uh, transition like? You're obviously already into endurance racing at that point. Did moving to Colorado increase your, you know, ability or training atmosphere? I mean, it's always like, I was very fortunate. It's like my family always brought us west for vacation. So it's like the mountains and Colorado were always like a desirable place for me. Obviously, when you come to Colorado, it's like the talent pool thickens a little bit. There's a lot more going on here as far as the bike culture goes. So it's just like, naturally, it's like, it was endless opportunities as far as the kind of races you wanted to do, the distances you wanted to do, the training rides that you wanted to do. But like really the draw to Colorado for me was just to like get myself immersed more into the mountains. And then obviously with that came more racing opportunities and training opportunities and meeting more like-minded folks. So what do you do at Aragon? Were you initially part of getting them into dealerships and, and selling them or? Yeah, it's like originally it was like a lot of marketing stuff. So I was going to events personally racing, but then also going there as like a brand ambassador. And it's like, I remember the first couple of races that I went to, it's like Ergon basically had sent me like 500 pairs of grips. And at the time, they only had one pair of grip. And they're like, give these out to people and start spreading the word. So it was just like, it was basically like a grip fairy, just like giving stuff to people. And then beyond that, it was a lot of just like customer service stuff via email. And it's just like working with other sponsored riders that we were working with, um, other athletes across the country, handpicking different athletes to work with to help spread the word. And then now it's like, it's exploded into a bazillion different things. It's like, now it's like almost a lot of my job details are social media related, event related, like going to Sea Otter, going to Sedona Mountain Bike Festival. It's like, anytime you go to an event, you see the Ergon van or you see the Ergon tent. It's like, that's me and anywhere from one to two other people. Customer service emails are still a thing. E-commerce is a thing. So it's, it's almost like basically the janitor. You basically got your hands in everything. You're doing it all. And Oregon in the United States is pretty small. There's only, there's only three of us full time. There's myself in Colorado. And then there's two guys that work out of uh, Southern California. That's really neat. So it seems like from, you know, an outsider looking in that you've been able to create a job where you can also race your bikes or you go into these events, you get to race, promote Ergon in that way, but then you also work the event. So it's kind of, you get best of both worlds. Yeah. And like Ergon's super supportive of it. It's like I chat with my boss, you know, three times a week. It's like we have marketing meetings every week. And it's just like, my boss is like, have you ridden yet today? It's like, I've looked at, I've looked at your Instagram. I haven't seen any pictures from, from you riding yet today. And then it's just like, they're very encouraging to go out and ride just for like, it's just healthy. It's just for the sanity of being a human. It's like, you got to get out there and do something. So it's, you know, happy employees make for, make the job go well, make the business grow. That is such a wise perspective that I wish more companies adopted. And it's nice to see, especially in the outdoor industry, 
companies that really get it and then understand because they understand the benefit. I mean, they assumingly your boss or the person you report to, I mean, he, he understands through personal experience, the value of it. And so he's going to encourage and promote his employees to seek out and have those same experiences. That's wonderful. Also product testing and things like that. So it's, yeah. Yeah. Got to create content for social media too. You know, it's all part of that. Right. I know it's, it's all part of the deal. It all comes with the territory. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm, I guess I'm kind of in the same in a different coming at a different angle, but yeah, it's a, right. you're always, but it's a great job. I mean, you're working in the bike industry doing something you love to do. So, you know, is it really a job? <laughs> no, no, it's not actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's one of those things where you're like, dang, this is pretty sweet. I always like, it's always nice to hear when people are able to, because so many people are stuck in jobs that they hate, aren't good, and are just, you know, probably not getting fulfillment in, in those areas. And so it's always great to see when people are able to carve out where they're getting fulfillment out of what they're actually doing from their job. So uh, I wanted to give you an opportunity to talk a little bit more about Ergon, because obviously you're very familiar with it, but specifically... I've ridden with your, I'm, I'm mostly a drop bar guy, um, but when I was doing flat bar, I immediately went to the Ergons. I did the ones with the bar ends on them integrated and um, they're great grips. Why don't you talk about some of the products that you like specifically for like bikepacking and ultra endurance cycling stuff? Yeah. So just like for background for people that might not know what Ergon is, it's just like Ergon is a German company. So like everything that we do is designed in-house in Germany God, when I started, there's probably 20 people. And now we're probably up to 60. And it's everything from like sports scientists, ergonomic specialists, product, you know, industrial engineers to basically all the people needed to, to pump out these products. But Ergon being a very German company, they also get very specific in their products and their products intended usages. So it's like we're mostly known for our grips, obviously, and also our saddles. But like every product that we do, like I said, is has an intended usage. So it's like, for bikepacking, it's like we have three or four different saddles and it's those expand to both male and female riders. And then it's like, we also have grips that are specific to that. Do you have a women and men specific grips? Is that what you're saying? We don't have men's and women's specific grips. We used to, that's actually how it started when I first started. But now because there was such a crossover of like men riding the women's grips and the women riding the men's grips that they basically changed that to small and small and large. Now. It's so interesting that you said that because I will oftentimes either get women's grips or the small, I have right. tiny hands. Um, right. I'm like the Burger King commercial guy, you know, the guy yeah, with yeah. tiny hands, <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I gravitate towards smaller grips. Yeah. It's so ever evolving. It's like right now it's like our most popular kind of like bikepacking products, like for men and women, it's our SM and our SMC saddles, which are basically a mountain bike saddle and a mountain bike comfort saddle. And then in the grip line, our most popular mountain bike grip that we have right now is called the GA3. And this is a grip that I used at Colorado Trail Race this year. It's a grip that Neil Bachenko used at Colorado Trail Race this year. But it, it basically, it's a crossover grip between our gravity grips and then how the brand started with like the really big wing platform grip. We basically melded the, or melted those two products together to come up with a more simplistic, minimalist, supported wing grip. It comes in a variety of different colors, which people are stoked for. I think this is all ulnar nerve related. Is that primarily what you're, the problem you're yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, fixing it's, or, yeah? Yeah, it's uh, like with the concept with the grips with, and the wing concept is to basically distribute weight 
distribute rider weight and distribute pressure off of the nerves that run through the hand. Almost anybody that does a bikepacking race is probably going to come out of that event with like, you know, numb fingertips on maybe like their pinky finger and maybe their thumb is numb or their, their wrists are wrecked. Ergon grips basically help to either eliminate that or to severely reduce that, that negative side effect of the type two fun that we like to have. Yeah. Well, for me personally, and people that listen to the podcast will know that we all have, I think our kind of Achilles heel that, you know, everybody suffers from something. And for me, man, my hands, wrists, that's the problem I'm always trying to solve. I've used several of your, your grips, especially when I was riding flat bar, that's all, all I rode. I always wondered what is the appropriate wrist angle Whenever you do it, should that grip be like elevated slightly so your wrist is more flat or is there a right way to do it? Any pair of ergon grips that you buy, it comes with a manual and in the, in the manual, it gives you kind of like a generalized, like this is where you should start from position, which is a little bit up from level. So it basically is keeping your, your wrist angle kind of at that. It's basically keeping your wrist and your forearm flat, but ultimately, and it's, this is like, a, this is a, question that I feel almost daily with customer services, it's going to vary from rider to rider based on what they need as a rider. And it's also going to be based on, you know, how they're positioned on the bike, like certain people, you know, their saddles really far up high and then their handlebars are really low, which is going to change the angle of the grip. And there's other people similar to myself that run almost the handlebars and the seat level, which is like, for me, it's like, I run the wing of an ergon grip just a little bit down from flat, you know, down from level to the ground, it gives support. But then like when I'm descending something, it also gives me, you know, something to lean into. So it's in a way that's to answer your question, the short, the, the gist of it is like, there's really no right or wrong. You just got to figure out and kind of dial it into what feels comfortable to you, the rider. Yeah. It makes sense. I mean, I can imagine even, you know, your top tube length, you know, how close you're sitting to the bars, how upright, how high you're, I mean, all these things are going to have minor impacts onto how you're coming into the grips. I haven't tried your saddles before. I know they're pretty popular with um, ultra athletes. Is there any technology to where the grips and the saddle, they kind of work together or is it, are they two independent systems? It's definitely two independent systems, but the saddles are very similar to the grips to where our saddle designs are specific to a, to a riding style or a position on the bike. Like our mountain bike saddles are definitely you know, a little bit longer nose, the padding in the back where your sit bone sits is a little bit thicker versus our road saddle, which has a little bit shorter nose. And a lot of the comfort features in the saddle are nudged a little bit further forward in the saddle because you're in a more downward aggressive riding position. Same thing with like our enduro saddle, which is even a smaller saddle in general, yet a little bit firmer just because of the demands of that kind of riding is, you know, you're sitting on it as much as you're not sitting on it. So it's, everything is very, very specific in its intended usage and its intended shape and even the materials that we use to, to make some of these saddles. So what specifically is it about a saddle that can help you on, on long events? If you're going to be in a saddle for a very long time, what should people look for in terms of, you know, fit or whatever to find a good saddle that would work for them? Yeah. So in general, the biggest thing that I see with people, not even necessarily if you're focused on bikepacking, but just like cyclists in general, when they're with saddles, it's like most people are on saddles that are too narrow for them. 
Um, most people ride the saddle that comes stock on their bike, which is at Ergon, we like to call saddles and grips on stock bikes placeholders. Like these are basically like super inexpensive parts that bike manufacturers will put on the bike and be just like done with it. And, you know, typically the, the grips are subpar and typically the saddle is too narrow. So the biggest thing that I try to kind of pound into people's heads when they buy any saddle, whether that's Ergon, whether that's physique, whatever it might be, it's like, get the right saddle for what, how you intend to ride and to make sure that you get the right saddle. That's the right width for your sit bones. So it can support your body. Like I said, most people are on saddles that are way, way, way too narrow. I'll tell you what, man, that struck a chord for me because I think like many people, this is probably one of the holy grails for cycling in general is finding the right yep. saddle. It's the thing that you sit on the most. I mean, shoes are relatively easy, but man, that saddle, I'll tell you what, that's the one thing most people really do struggle with. And I'm a relatively skinny guy. I always assumed that I had narrow sit bones and I did one of those things where you can sit on it. It leaves an impression. They measure your ass cheeks and all that stuff. And, uh, I, I, I'm like a 179, you know, I've got these wide sit bones. And so, yeah, that made the biggest difference is once I got on a wider seat, then it was just like fine tuning a saddle that fit better. But man, once your sit bones are up and you're elevated, that's a, that's a big one. Yeah. Cause you're as a rider, it's your bone structure is what supports your body weight. And if the saddle can't support the bone structure, it's like, then all the supports going onto soft tissue, which then leads into the, the numbness issues and everything else that most people commonly complain about. Right. Yeah. So you're kind of like sitting lower on the saddle. You're not as yep. supported as you would be if you had the right width. I think that's good information, man. Sorry to make you work a little bit after work. No, but, it's uh, all good. <laughs> you know, the uh, you know ultra endurance and and people looking to just ride on their bike for a long period. I think hands, ulnar nerve, wrist, seat. These are some of the major issues you're going to hear people talk about. And obviously, you you know a thing or two about it. Right. So it's pretty it's pretty amazing the the riding experiences that we've we've changed or enhanced just through the stuff that's come out of the German think tank and the products that they produce. It's stuff that I would never even think of that they come up with. It's just, it's pretty mind blowing. Yeah. I'll have to give one of your saddles a try. And again, that's the Holy grail is always on the search for like the perfect saddle. Well, you know, a guy, so <laughs> yeah, I mean, I know you do. Hey, uh, <laughs> I wanted to, um, just really thank you on the podcast. I've talked about my first ever bike packing trip in Colorado was in 2018 and I made a post on some Facebook message boards. Does anybody know anybody in Eagle, Colorado, the area? And you reached out on Facebook and, and were just like overly, not overly in a bad way, but you were just so helpful. Uh, I went back and because recently uh, Ben Crannell that edits this podcast, he was like, hey, I'm going to Eagle to, to go ride bikes. I'm like, dude, I know a guy. Right. Um, and so you helped him put together a route. And so you've helped two of us now ride or create routes in that area. And both of us walked away with just amazing experience. I mean, that, that route is absolutely stunning. I take it that's in your backyard. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't my backyard. I, I haven't lived there now for a year, but it's like that whole, I mean, like when you think Colorado, it's like you, everybody always has, you know, the perceptions of like the mega top riding spots like they're always thinking like breckenridge or they're always thinking like crested butte or the crest trail and salida you know grand junction fruta 
but the, you know, places like that, but it's, you know, I've lived here since 2007. It's like, I'm still turning over stones and finding amazing places to ride bikes. And it's Eagles, one of those spots that's definitely untapped as far as like they have their really good in-town network. But if you get into the back country where you start border bordering wilderness and start pushing in to the West side of Leadville and places like that, it like, it opens up endless exploration opportunities. So it's, I get pretty excited when it comes to sharing the backyard. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, it was funny. I was just headed there for a wedding just randomly. So I'm like, well, I'm going to be there. Let's see what's out there. And, and there wasn't anything on bikepacking.com or anything. There weren't any published routes, which is why I went to the internet to seek out some beta. What I was wondering is, have you thought about submitting that as, as a bikepacking route to bikepacking.com or, or anything? On uh, bikepacking.com, I submitted a, I think it's like a 30 mile loop on their sub 24 overnighter routes, um, which basically does, it's kind of, it does a little bit of what I sent you guys on, but it also touches into a little more remote single track and a little bushwhacking and a little bit more adventure. Yeah. You saved us on that trip. I don't know how much of this you'll remember, but we were driving from, I, I live at under 300 feet elevation here in Texas. So we're, we're driving and I think we camped at, you know, that first night with like three days of being at elevation, we camped at like 9,000 feet at Pinion, Pinion something campground. I can't remember. Oh yeah. Fulford or something. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and then we climbed up and camped at 11,200 feet and I got, altitude sickness for the first time in my life. I've climbed a lot of mountains, uh, but yeah, climbing on your bike is different. You get to elevation quicker, way quicker and way quicker. And, but originally we were like, Oh, we'll do a hundred miles and do it in three days. But that's what you did is we really like you really, I helped you where we talked through like my fitness and what I was going through. And you're like, maybe you should do. And I remember it was like 58 miles. I think like something right. like that. And it turned out to be awesome. Just but right. Good. Yeah, I got over the um, the altitude sickness. It broke at like two o'clock in the morning, and then I felt right as rain. That descent down Hard Scrabble Mountain. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah, yeah. Good stuff. <laughs> I'll never yeah, forget. Yeah, it. It's there. Like I said, there's endless opportunities back there for just about any bike. Whether you're bike packing, just going out for a mountain bike ride, or even like the gravel riding is really good too. It is so good. Yeah, it was so good. Well, let's talk about your introduction to bikepacking. You've obviously been racing. You mentioned, obviously, 12 and 24-hour stuff. When did you actually get into bikepacking? So I got into bikepacking when I moved to Colorado. So it would have been around probably 2007, 2008. And really, my natural progression into bikepacking was the 24-hour and 12-hour scene was literally dying. Like, there was no more races. Like, I think 24 hours in the old Pueblo was really like really the only big event that was really kind of happening anymore. And for me, it's like, I was trying to find just longer events. Like there was still events like, you know, you could obviously go do like the Leadville 100 or the Breck 100, but it's like, I was looking for something more. So then like naturally it's just like at the time I was using Linda Wallenfels as my coach and I was just like, I'm going to do Colorado trail race this year. So let's start a training, you know, get me on a training plan. Let's do it you know, but maybe the people that aren't listening know it's like, I've now done it seven times. And this was the first year that I've ever finished it. But it's like, it's taken literally seven attempts to get to the finish line of that event. And it, what's funny is like doing CTR 
as your first bikepacking race is like showing up to the Tour de France as your first road race. Like it's literally <laughs> at the pinnacle of like the most difficult thing you can do in bikepacking, maybe outside of Tour Divide. But it's anybody that's done it will tell you that it's like one of the most amazing things you can do on two wheels. So it's like, that's why I kept going back. It's like, it's like, yes, you get frustrated when you don't finish, but it's like, I've probably learned, I have learned more in life through bikepack racing than I probably have through any other life experiences about how to deal with when things go sideways. And, you know, it's, you just learn, it teaches you to learn and you have to learn, you have to adapt. And that's kind of the draw to it. I'm not as experienced with the 12 and 24 hour stuff. I, I used to actually do some of it, but a lot of times I found it's, you know, maybe a, a mountain bike circuit and you're just going around in laps. And so you're really, you know, bikepacking, you're forced to be out. I mean, if you're on the Colorado trail, there's, you know, it's just you and the trail and you got to figure it out. Is that kind of what you mean by given the opportunity to learn more about yourself? Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's like with Colorado trail race or any bikepacking race, it's not like you do 20 miles, you come back to your pit and you grab food it's like in some cases using Colorado Trail as an example it's like you go depending on direction it's like you go from Buena Vista to Silverton that's 200 miles and there's nowhere to get food so then it's like you have to sit down and calculate how much you know how many calories do I need how much food do I need how am I going to carry all this yeah it's just like there's so many there's so many like kind of x factors that go into any bikepacking event or any bikepacking ride any bikepacking race yeah, way more, a lot more factors. So going back to that first race, how did you train? 2007 was pretty early on. So I'm even wondering how, how familiar your coach was for training for this type of an event and, and kind of what your preparation was leading up to it. Yeah. So like the cool thing about Linda using Linda is like, she does the same races that I was doing. Like she had done other similar bikepacking races. So it's like, she had coached other athletes through Colorado trail, trail race. So she had built a plan around that. And it's like, it's a mixture of kind of what you would expect it to be. It's like, it's a lot of going out on your loaded bike, doing big days on the weekends. And then it's, you know, during the weekdays, you're doing like the quote unquote training where you're doing intervals where you're doing, you know, tempo workouts or threshold workouts. It's, you know, the stuff that a lot of people might not find to be fun, but it's like, for me, it's like I do enjoy, I, I enjoy structure, not only in training, but just like in everyday life. So it's like I enjoyed the structure component of it. And I enjoyed like obsessing over gear. And it's like I enjoyed like if she'd say, I need you to go out on Saturday and ride your bike for eight hours. And on Sunday, I need you to go out and ride your bike for 10 hours. And it's like, great. That's what I would do anyway, if I wasn't being coached right now. So it's just like, even though you're preparing for an event, it's like, it's the same thing I would be doing on any given, on any given weekend, just because it's yeah. like, I'm a cyclist and it's what I enjoy doing. How did uh, the CTR specifically come on your radar? Like you said, I mean, that's the pinnacle. Did you intentionally start at the top or was it, you just didn't exactly know what you're getting yourself into? I didn't know what I was getting myself into. Um, I didn't know what I was getting myself into. I knew it was going to be challenging, but like living in Colorado, it's, it's like, it's one of the, you know, it's like people that live in Colorado. It's like, everybody knows about the level 100. It's like, if you're a bike packer and you live in Colorado, at that time, it's like you knew of the Colorado trail race. So it's, and I'd had friends, mutual friends and other cyclists that had done it in the past. And they're like, you should maybe try this at some point. So it's, it got to the point where I was like, this is the year I'm going to do it. And started going through the process of getting ready for it. Did you do much training on the actual Colorado trail to prepare? Yeah. 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 For sure. And I still do to this day. I mean, it's, yeah. 
like now it's literally in my backyard. When I lived in Fort Collins, you know, it was two, three hour, you know, I drive up to, I basically, I would drive up to Breckenridge and just base camp for the weekend. And then from Breckenridge, it's like, you could ride towards Denver or if you, the other way you could ride towards Leadville. And it's, it, it, the cool thing about using Breckenridge as a base camp area is it like, it basically immersed your, it immersed you in the high altitude stuff right away. Like you're automatically playing at 10,000 feet, 11,000 feet, 12,000 feet, which is training and riding at altitude, like a big component of that event. So it's very interesting. I've heard quite a few stories of people tackling events similar to this, whether CTR or tour divide or whatever, and they go in with very little preparation, but I mean, you're coming in with a pretty good understanding right. about, I mean, initially you like, didn't really understand, but I mean, if you trained on it, you're an ultra endurance athlete, you got a coach that um, has experience training people for it. So what was that first year like? What, what happened in the end? So if I recall correctly, the first year I did it, we left Denver and by the time I got to Kenosha Pass, the monsoon set in. So it was, this was when the Colorado Trail went up Highway 285 versus doing the long road detour that it does now. So basically getting from Denver to Kenosha Pass was only like a five hour effort versus being an all day effort that it is now. But I remember getting to Kenosha Pass and immediately putting on all my rain gear. And I literally didn't take it off for three days. It just rained nonstop. And eventually what led to my demise was I had trench foot. I completely couldn't walk anymore. The heels of my feet were just destroyed apart to the point where to try to keep going, I had cut out the back of my shoes with a small pocket knife that I had. So it was like, it was basically like I was wearing like sandals, but it, it just got to the point where it's like the bottom of my feet were so cracked that it was like I was walking on glass, which was pretty much a no go. And I can't even remember how far I made it that year. It might've been like just outside of like Sergeant's Mace or Gunnison. So it was like basically halfway through the route before I pulled the plug on that one. Do you think that was like unavoidable or was it just so much rain? Did you learn from that experience and do things differently? I, or? I did learn from that experience. I had, but the issue is like, that I look back on it now, the reason, like I could have like not had that happen if I would have took waterproof rain cover or waterproof shoe covers or a second pair of socks which is like all stuff that I carry now on the Colorado trail race. You can be miserable and go slow, or you can carry just a little bit more gear and be comfortable and go a hell of a lot faster. I've heard that sentiment expressed quite a few times. And I think it comes from wisdom is a lot of times people, and I don't know if you're really trying to put, that doesn't sound like a push it, but sometimes if you're trying to push the pointy end of a race, you sacrifice some things and you hear about people getting caught in situations where you learn that having a little bit of comfort or, or whatever, it's going to benefit you in the long run, you know? Yeah. It's definitely my, my kit has gotten heavier for CTR every year that I've done it. I've carried more and more stuff. So it's like I said, it was up until this year that finally that kit all came to you know, came to realization that this is what I needed to get through the whole thing. <laughs> That's so funny. I want to, we'll go through the progression a little bit, but I'm wondering for that first year, just how you were feeling when you walked away, were you feeling like disappointed or determined, surprised by how hard it was? Like, what were you, what was your takeaway? Like my biggest thing was I was bummed because it was like, at the time it's like, oh, I don't know how I could have kept this from happening. And it's, it's just one of those deals where it's like, 
anybody that tells anybody that prepares for a car trail race and anybody that does car trail race, it's like, it's a big time and energy sucks. So it's like, it takes, and initially it's like you kind of go yes and no over the dropping out of the race while you're doing the race as things progressively get worse. Um, and then when you finally, you know, get to that point where it's like, you have to pull the plug and then it's like, you kind of end up kind of stewing on it for a week or two, but then it's like, you realize, okay, this is what I got to do. And then you get your shit together and you go back and do it next year, or you wait a year and go back and do it, you know, the following year or whatever it might be. Like, I just knew that like I could change things and go back and get further or, you know, finish it or get further than I did the last time. What were your goals going into that first one? Was it a, did you go with some lofty goals and pressure on yourself or? Oh, as like, through the years, it's like, especially with that event, it's like I went into it and it's like, I want to win this thing. And then as I've gone through, you know, the various seven attempts now, six attempts and one finish, it's just like with any bikepacking race, the first thing on the list is to just finish it. doesn't matter if you finish first, doesn't matter if you finish 10th. It's just like, just finish it. Cause it's like, you can't win if you can't finish. You can't get third if you can't finish. So it's just like, you finish it, let the result come. And in the end, it's like, it's a bikepacking race. It doesn't matter if you get first. It doesn't matter if you get 10th. It's like, you're going to feel a whole lot better if you just finish that thing. Cause there's not a lot of people that do. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. So. One thing I really like about your story is, um, it shows how difficult the Colorado trail is and people who finish it, it's a badge of honor. I mean, it really is. I mean, people who have done tour divide and CTR both, and I'm not one of them will tell you, you know, it might be 2000 more miles, but it's an easier ride. You know, it's more, it's more doable than, than riding 500 miles on Colorado trail. Right. Yeah. It's like, I look at, you know, like Neil's record. It's like, it just, and there's a lot of people in my same shoes that are just like, it's pretty mind blowing to think that, you know, he did it in like whatever it was three days and 20 hours. Or you look at somebody like Hefe that's, you know, he's done it he's completed it six times now. And like almost every time has been on a single speed and it's, he's won it a few times. And then you look at some of the top pro road guys and Payson, who's a very strong cyclist, national, you know, marathon national champion. It's like the Colorado trail doesn't give basically two shits who you are. It's like, it will chew you up and spit you out and it's done it to the best of people. And it, and it'll continue to do it to the best of people. And that's kind of the cool thing about it. 100%. The trail doesn't care. The weather doesn't care. You're just, you're out there. Payson is a good example. We've talked about him with all due respect. I mean, again, he's a top level athlete and uh, had to pull the plug and, and walked away with a little bit of humility, but a lot of respect I know for the race and for bike packers. And I hear he's going to be, he's actually headed to Iceland. I saw to uh, do some bike packing. So uh, he's getting a little bit more experience under his belt and I'm sure he'll finish it one day. Yeah, the competition right now on the Colorado Trails is healthy and it's really exciting to watch. Like anytime somebody like a top name male or female rider shows up to, you know, to set a record or, you know, really push the limits of how fast you can go on the course. It's really exciting to kind of sit back and armchair quarterback it via track leaders and just, you know, because it's like if you've done it, you know what they're going through. You know what they're going through mentally. You know what they're going through physically you know what their feet are feeling like, you know what their hands are feeling like. It's like, you just know. And you can even, you know, with track leaders now, you can do the weather layers and see which way the wind is blowing. I mean, it's just, right. if you know, you can really like put you like, man, that's, that's a, 
tough pool or whatever, you know. Do you remember every attempt and what was your ultimate demise? It would be super interesting to hear like a, a breakdown. Right. Um, let me think here. So the first one was trench foot. And then there was one, there was one I went into it where I kind of just winged it with the training. I didn't go through a coach. I didn't use Linda and I went to, I went into it over train. So I was basically like two days into it and I was just mentally over it and pulled the plug trying to think here. I had one year where I was doing really, really well. I flatted, put a tube in, flatted, put another tube in, flatted. And then I went to grab my patch kit and I realized I didn't have it. So I was, I had no way to, so basically it was like lesson learned, make sure you have all your stuff for your flat kit. So it's like pre stands and all that. No. So this was, this was with stands. So I had flatted my tubeless setup and then I had flatted, I carried two tubes and I had flatted all my tubes. And then I went to grab a, my patch kit to repair the third flat with the tube and I didn't have it. Do you think that was, I mean, obviously it speaks to how gnarly that trail is, but do you, was it a poor tire choices? No, it's two that was just a, it's just a trail. It's a Colorado trail. It's like, it just, it just eats equipment. So it's, it was just one of those, it's, it's like it was meant to happen because it's, it's like now it's like I make like any ride. It's like, make sure I got tubes and all the appropriate flat stuff. Trying to think what else here. The most recent one would have been 2017, I think was attempt number six. And that was a saddle sore issue, which was a result of something I don't do anymore with basically bikepacking races that last more than two days and that's try to race in one pair of shorts it's just like it i just can't do it it's like between you know um sweat and moisture getting into like a chamois and then you're sitting on it and then just like how rough the Colorado trail is it's just like you might as well be sitting on a board full of nails because it's like eventually it's just going to chew right through you i learned a very valuable lesson with that because i basically took that error with me when I went and did Silk Road and it's like, okay, I'm going to be on the bike for potentially 10 days. So it's like, I'm going to take three pairs of shorts. And I did. And I went, I recycled through all three pairs of shorts to, to get through that event in six days. And I had no saddle sore issues. And that's kind of the thing, like this year for Colorado trail races, I took two pairs of shorts and I went basically did the first two days in one pair and then finished off the rest of the race. And in the second pair, we've actually talked about this at different times but when it comes up, but I'm finding that more and more athletes are doing this, carrying at least two bibs. What is your actual process for keeping yourself clean or drying them out? Like, what do you actually do to keep everything clean, essentially? Yeah, so like with CTR, it's like I carry baby wipes. So it's like I'll start the race in the one pair of shorts and basically wear them for two days. And then when it comes time, basically take those shorts off basically every day clean yourself daily, like with the baby wipes. Um, and then when it comes time to change into another pair of shorts, it's obviously, it's like really clean yourself, throw on that next pair of shorts and, and off you go. Um, one thing that I've gotten away from over the years, especially with the multi-day stuff is I basically, I don't use chamois cream anymore. I use chamois cream on like, you know, like a day ride or, you know, a four hour ride or whatever, but it's like, like ultimately it's like moisture is the king of creating saddle sore issues. So it's like basically any kind of chamois cream is it basically just like it aggravates it. It almost makes it come on like saddle sore issues come on faster. 
Yeah, it seems counterintuitive to what you would think. People right. would probably think that they just want to lube up and yep. you know have lots of yeah, lots of lubrication. What about like aquifer? Do you ever? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I was just gonna say, it's like a, that works, and then also like the other thing that like for me personally that works is just like find a really good pair of cycling shorts that fit you well, like that like that fits you like compresses like. Yeah, it's not sliding around as much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't want a pair of shorts where the chamois sliding an inch every direction <laughs> you know, <it's> yeah <laughs> basically just leads to to friction and then saddle source i'll tell you another tip i don't remember who gave it to me but when we were talking about this what they do is two different pairs of chamois that are both good fitting and they know work but where the seams are a little bit different so that you have a little bit different pressure yeah. points i think neil i think that's something that neil did this year on okay. Colorado trail race it didn't. We actually chatted a couple of weeks ago, but I don't think that one came up when we were chatting. But yeah, I mean, it's just it's just those little things right. can make a can make a big difference when you're just getting pounded for right. five hundred mile. You know, that's soft tissue down there. So uh, it's it's funny. You know, you don't probably see a lot of articles about this kind of stuff. So I'm like, hey, we'll do a public service and we'll talk about the nasty bits. So help help people out a little bit. I have a couple of questions here, but one, talk about your, um, your goals as they progressed through the years, you know, in the beginning you were obviously gunning, you know, you wanted to go out and have a good result. Was that always the goal or did, did your kind of expectations and stuff shift as it kind of went on? Well, it's like from a competitive component, it's like anybody I think that lines up to any bike race wants to do well. It's like, obviously for me, it's like, I still want to be at the pointy end of anything that I line up for. But it's like I also have my the realization and the realities of the fact that it's like I'm 43 years old, so it's like I'm not necessarily going to be getting any faster, maybe wiser, which actually plays a big role in a lot of these multi-day events. Um, Speaking of Hefe Branham, you know, yep, exactly. That guy brings a lot of wisdom with him on yep. the trail. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's it's just my goals now. It's like. I, I still want to be competitive, but it's like, I don't put the pressure on me as much as I used to, because now it's like, just basically let it, let these events kind of flow as they go. It's like, basically just like, if I just go with it and it's like things start going sideways. It's like, I used to get super frustrated and try to do everything in my way to change that given situation. But now it's just, I've learned to like, this is what it is. You just laugh at it, put on all your rain gear if that's what it takes and you keep going because it's like in a reality, it's like everybody that's behind you or in front of you is going through the same exact situation. It's like, you're not the only one. And it's like the bad stuff like isn't always going to last forever. So it's just like, keep moving, keep the emphasis on having fun. And like I said earlier, it's like, if you're having fun doing what you're doing, it's like ultimately the re- the end result will come. So it's control what you can and then deal with the little challenges as they come to you. Yeah. I was going to actually ask how much pressure you're putting, you know, is this continued, I mean, I don't journey. Well, it's called a journey. Like, did it, did it grow into something that was just like a huge monkey on your back or were you able more to kind of just like laugh at it and be like, all right, here we go again. You know, it's Like, like, luckily for me, it's like, as an athlete, it's like, I don't earn a paycheck racing my bike or, you know, coming up with bike race results. So it's like, luckily it's like, I've been fortunate enough to align myself with industry partners that are like, 
we want you to go out and have fun, do what you do, you know, and get 500 other people to get stoked on what you're doing and maybe go out and do what you're doing. You know, it's like, it's like, ultimately it's like, go out and have fun. If the result is there, great. If it's not still have fun, but then also like, you know, share the stoke, like get other people involved in riding bikes, get other people involved in bike packing, you know, spread the love with product, whatever it might be. So it's in this day and age, it's like, honestly, it's like, whether it's me or just about any athlete or whatever, it's like results are such a small component of it anymore. It's like most bike brands want to like share a lifestyle. It's like most people that ride bikes want to share their lifestyle and they want to, they want, they want to share it with other people. So it's, that's kind of the cool thing about it right now. So it's just like, I've evolved into like, yes, I'm still going to be competitive. It's like, yes, I'm still going to like sit down and prepare for an event. But it's like, ultimately it's like, if I get a bad result, it's like, I'm not going to stew on it. It's like, it's because it's, in the, in the end, it's like, it's just riding a bicycle. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, that's a great way to look at it. And speaking about, you know, anyone who does these kind of events, you don't see a lot of big egos, typically, even from a top level athlete like Neil no. or Hefe or no. other people that we had mentioned, because you don't, you're, everybody's humbled by those experiences out there. You know, everybody's going to have hard times and yeah, a lot of respect for that. And that's very much in the, ethos with with bikepacking which is kind of one of the nice things about it is yeah you see a lot of a lot of the camaraderie and the community and sharing the stoke and and being happy for other competitors and all the kinds of things you want to see competition is great i'm not a big racer personally but i i like to watch but i think it's like you said it's like man it's just riding bikes it's having fun and if you enjoy having goals and and training and wanting to be at the pointy end and pushing yourself in those ways and that's how you like to experience and enjoy it then hell yeah man go out there and give it hell you know right right yeah it's it's super cool how open the the bikepacking community is it's like I use Jay Peterberry as an example. It's like when I went to do Silk Road, it's like he, that first year, like he was like, and even like his winter pursuit races, it's like he was an open book as far as like, he goes, this is what I did, but this isn't necessarily what you should do. But he's like, this is kind of, this is what I carried. So it's like, I look at that and I'm like, okay, I know I need a warmer sleeping bag than that. And I know I need this instead of that. So it's like, you know, he had set like a baseline of like, this is how you should go into this and then tweak it based on your needs. And it's like, there's a few riders that I helped this year for Silk Road. And there's even other riders that have reached out to me for Colorado Trail. And it's like, I'd literally send them my gear list. I'm like, this is what I took. But it's like kind of in the same way with what Jay did with me. It's like, I tell them, it's like, you need to tweak this based on what you need to do to get to the finish line. Well, and it also is like, I actually I was reading one of your uh, Facebook posts or Instagram posts, and essentially you said that you love. Oh, is the riders' rigs um, for um, the CTR? And you said I love seeing all the different setups. It just shows that there's no one way to get to the finish line. You have to figure it out yourself. And like you were saying earlier, I mean that's part of the fun puzzle is whenever you tackle bike packing and get into it it goes past having all the support system and you, you know, it's everything is dialed to a lot more components that you have to be prepared for and be capable of dealing with on your own, you know, big difference. Speaking of differences, what was the difference for 2021 
and you know the six attempts previously was there anything you can point to that was the thing that helped you or was it a culmination uh i think my biggest thing like with my mentality it's like i went into it with the first goal of finishing um i also went into it with a more fun bike like in previous attempts it's like i'd ridden everything from a hardtail to like a cross-country bike um this year i went into it with a 130 mil travel trail bike which was way more fun to ride on the trail, dropper post, all that stuff. My rain kit was a little, was more extensive. Like I basically had head to toe Gore-Tex and I used it on the first day and the second day. And then, yeah, it's just like, I just through the various experiences, not just with CTR, but just with all the various bikepacking events that I've done. It's like, I've learned that you can be miserable and slog through it, or you can be comfortable and be happy and go faster. And it's just one of those things where it's like, I'll carry, I'll learn that it's like, I'll carry a little bit more stuff to not be as miserable. You don't have to be miserable to finish these things. And, and that was kind of the mentality that when I first signed up for it, it's like, Oh, you got to be lean and light. Like you have to carry no sleeping bag. It's like, you have to carry hardly any rain gear. It's like, it doesn't pay in the long run. It, at least for me, it doesn't pay. I know there are people that can get away with it, but it's like, for me, it's like, I feel like it's a, it's a huge gamble and it's like going into it and how my seventh time this year, it was just like, I'm done gambling. It's just like, I just want to get it done and, and to have a good time doing it. And this year, like the whole process was phenomenal. It's just like, there was no pressure and it's like the pressure that there was, was all self-induced anyway, but it's just like, my whole thing was just like, get to the finish line. doesn't matter if it takes three days or if it takes seven days or whatever. Go with the flow. How did the weather compare to previous years? I, I mean, I know it was raining a decent amount. Um, I know Neil got caught up in a, a pretty big storm on top of one of the passes. Yeah, I would say the weather this year was pretty typical. Like, it seems like we haven't had a monsoon in Colorado for like the last five years. The last time I did CTR, we didn't have a monsoon and like, there was hardly any water anywhere on course. Like water was a huge issue this year. Like water was a plenty as far as rain went. It's like, I got stuck up on top of, or I got basically into the lightning and the severe weather on top of Mullis pass before Silverton, which is where most people got into it. And I made the call a bunch, you know, with a bunch of other guys to basically kind of wait it out in Silverton. So it was like myself and like four other dudes got into this, like we we rented a one bedroom cabin. It was basically designed for two people, but we had five guys in there. Everybody slept for like four hours and then got up and, and went. And, you know, while we're doing this, you know, Neil rolls the dice and decides to go for it, which ultimately it's like, that was a decisive move on his part. You know, that was the, the race playing out. I don't know if you know this, but he, he didn't quite, I, cause I asked him this question. It's like, did you know um, but it was kind of one of those things where he was, he got up there and he's like, uh, and you know, and made a decision to keep going, but he almost turned around, you know? So, right. It's yeah, it's, uh, there was lightning bolts hitting mountaintops when I was coming down into Silverton, which was, a, you know, it's like onto the point I've learned my lesson of taking risks in these races. And it's like, I'm to the point now where it's like, I am not going to take a risk, especially when it, when it starts flirting with a life risk, like, being up at 13,000 feet when there's lightning bolts hitting mountaintops at 11,000 feet, it's like, it's another roll of the dice. And it's like, I'm done rolling <laughs> dices. You know, it's like, I'm not going to roll the die anymore. Were there any times this year that, were there any close calls where you're like, oh shit, not again, you know, or did, was it pretty smooth overall? 
No, no. It's like all the, I really wouldn't even say I had issues. I had like, I had a normal CTR experiences or a normal CTR experience and like the aches and the pains that, and the, and the down moments that came with it is the same stuff that everybody else is going to, is going to deal with. It's just in the past, I didn't know how to deal with it. And it's like through the experience of not only CTR, but other events, it's like, I've learned how to deal with those issues, whether that's, you know, having the right clothing or compression socks in the legs or just, you know, just being fine with stopping for an hour and not riding. Yeah. It was just like taking past failures and learning from those and going forward. So the, the big question, I don't know if it's a big, big question, but like, it's a really neat story to fail at something so many times. And especially coming in with, you weren't just coming in off the street, you're coming in with real experience and you know, you're learning, learning, learning. What, kept you coming back like what kept you motivated and, and inspired or whatever it was to just keep coming back well like my desire like my draw to the Colorado trail is just like it's like the grandeur of the whole thing it's like it's the high mountains it's like being in the backcountry it's it's traversing the trail as a whole it's like for me it's like my happy place is like being on the top of segment you know basically being on top of segments 20 two and 23 of the Colorado trail, which is like the whole high point above Silverton where you're like at 12 and 13,000 feet and you're just traversing and there's no trees. And it's just like, it's just, you're on top of the, you're literally on top of the world. So it's like that kind of environment, like that's the draw to me for the Colorado trail. And that's also or that for the race. And that's also the draw for me just in like in cycling in general, whether it's a day ride or whether it's, you know, Silk Road or, you know, any of these other kind of, exotic races that you might hear about out there. That's one of the nice things about bike packing is yeah, you're racing, but you're also out there long enough and slow enough to just enjoy it and look around and be like, I mean, you're in it. So I was just going to ask how it feels to, I don't know, huge sigh of relief, huge feeling of accomplishment. How does it feel to finally be done? It's kind of, it's definitely a sigh of relief, but now it's like, it's like, I'm like now scheming. It's like, how can I go back uh-huh. and do it even faster? <laughs> You know, it's like, how can I maybe tweak my kit just a little bit or tweak the bike or equipment, something. It's like, how can you do it just a little bit faster? Because it's like this year, it took me right around five days. And it's like, it's funny, I finished and it's like, I thought I was out there for six days. It's like after a while, it's like you start to lose, you know, perception of time and days because the sun just keeps going up, come down, comes back up. Math is hard when you're like sleep deprived and you're jittery and... (laughs) Yeah. So it's like, it's, I'd like to go back and to try to maybe push the effort a little bit. There was a couple of times this year where, where it's like, I definitely was like getting a little wonky and it's like, okay, I got to stop and sleep. And it's just like, you know, you lay down and you're like, I'm going to sleep for maybe an hour or two, but then you wake up and you're like, Oh shit, I just slept for four or five. Um, so there's like, there's, there's definitely ways where I could cut some time, whether this is something I do next year, or if it'll probably end up being something where I give it a little bit of time, but to go back and do it again. I don't know. We'll see. You're still pretty fresh off of it. You got some time to make a think about it. <laughs> oh yeah. There's, it's not going anywhere. That's <laughs> well, yeah, the beauty 100%. of 100%. What about, uh, any other events? Um, any, any other bike packing events or anything like that on your radar that you might be, uh, looking at doing? Uh, like I really, like, I'd really like to go back and do Silk Road mountain race again. Um, I'd also like to go and do, potentially the Atlas mountain race next February in Morocco, maybe tour divide at some point, but like that race 
for me, logistically is hard because it's like basically a month off and like the busiest time of the work schedule for me. Yeah. It's like, it basically just comes down to like what fits in the work schedule and also like what fits in like my motivation schedule. You know, it's like a lot of times, like when I've done events like the smoke and fire 400, it was like, I decided like a month out that it's like, Oh, this fits into the schedule. Okay. Let's go do it. So it's, it basically just comes down to what fits. I mean, it's, I'm, I'm pretty much game to doing just about any, pretty much just about any bikepacking event. As long as there's an experience to be had, you know, something new to see. That's another one of the big draws is like experience, experiencing a culture or experiencing terrain that you'd never, you otherwise would never immerse yourself in. Yeah. Well, I was wondering if you would go back to the Colorado trail for that reason, if you were like, okay, check, I'm onto something else, but it obviously sounds like it's a more of a love affair with the, that area and that trail. And well, there's, yeah. I mean, I think we all see that from year to year. Cause you've got guys like Neil that come back year after year. You got guys like Chris Plesko that come back year after year and Hefe and numerous other people that are always on the start list year after year. And it's just like, it's a love affair with being in the Colorado backcountry. What was your favorite storyline uh, from this year's Colorado trail other than your own? Like I was pretty excited to see the Plesco Marnie and Chris finish it just because they were basically doing something that hadn't like that hasn't been done before. And it's just like on paper, it seems like the most ridiculous thing you could ever do. Cause it's just like with one person and one bike, like it's a lot of pushing and it's a hard trail to ride. But then when you can join two bikes to one and then you add another person into that, it's, there's a lot that can go wrong and there's a lot more, there's a lot of struggle that's going to happen that a normal person wouldn't have. Like that story is cool. And same with like, I always enjoy like, like Hefe's story. It's like, I rode with Hefe for probably most of my CTR this year. And the dude is like, he's chill. He's just stoked to be out there. He's on a single speed. He's going just as fast as everybody else is, but it's like, he's like the wise old man. It's like, he knows what he needs to do. He smiles the whole time he does it. He's like, when it's, when it's miserable, he just deals with it. And it's, it's just cool to see. I got to interview both of those uh, people. I talked to Chris and Marnie um, and then also uh, Hefe and they all exuded just immense positivity about their experience. And I think it really just talks is, is if you want to be successful, you have to learn how to be positive, have a positive mental attitude. And if you're just dragging yourself down all the time, it's not going to be having fun, man. What's the point of that? You just got to laugh at it. Like if it starts raining, you laugh. If it starts snowing, you laugh. It's just like, it's like every, every time it happens, it's like, here's a special challenge. It's like, how are you going to deal with it? And then you move on. That's bikepacking. It's a, it was, it's, it's not even just bikepacking. It's like, it's almost with everything in life. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It's life. It's, it's teaching you life skills and you don't even know it. <laughs> 100%. You can't, you feel so much more capable. It's a weird feeling because you feel capable and like you did something. And also the grandeur of everything makes you feel small. And it, I think it really lends to like a healthy balance in a person where you're, you're like, man, I can do really hard things if I can persevere and try really hard. But I also realize I'm very small and wind and cold and lightning and all these things are, are, you know, like you said, the trail doesn't give a shit about you, man. It's a, uh, it's just there. Yep. Well, I appreciate your time, man. I, I got to cut it off and go get my daughter, unfortunately. Well, not unfortunately. Here you go. And I got, I got work emails to answer. 
<laughs> dude seriously thanks for your time and uh probably more importantly man that just thanks for being like i appreciate you being so nice to me just a random guy on the internet and being so helpful um you know back in the day and and also just being a great um just an example of a god i mean that what a i mean that story of seven times and finishing once like that's seriously uh impressive so congratulations thanks man yeah if people want to uh, find you on the internet and like follow along anything you got going on, how what's the best way to follow you? I mean, probably the easiest way is on Instagram, and that's just at Jeff Kirkove on you know on Instagram. And the same thing with Facebook. Just Google my or just put my name into the search, <laughs> and you're gonna find it. <laughs> yeah, he's the guy wearing the Aragon hat with a uh, yeah the, the guy with the Aragon, Aragon hat. van, and yeah, yeah. Anytime you see Aragon, it's probably gonna be me, especially if it's in the United States. Good stuff. All right, peace out, dude. Thanks again. Have a good one. Awesome. Thank you. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode. And thanks again to Jeff for coming on the podcast and sharing his amazing story with us. And again, congratulations and kudos on uh, not giving up, man, and being a true inspiration to people out there. We all face challenges and obstacles in our life. And it really is a matter of how are we going to deal with it? How bad do you want it? That's a good question. How bad do you want something? Are you willing to go back to the start line seven times and beat yourself up for the chance to finish, complete a task that you set out to do? Jeff was, which is pretty cool. I hope y'all enjoyed that story. That's pretty awesome, right? I feel like next time I come to a roadblock on my life, I will remember that story and uh, just push on through, keep on trying. Let's see what we got for housekeeping today. The popular muggles, the ceramic one-of-a-kind coffee mugs that are made by our, our friend Amanda with Panda Wares, those are in stock we're going to be putting those up on the website and social media today. So if you want to take a look at all of the new muggles that we have available and for sale soon, uh, check those out because they are going for sale on the website Friday at 12 p.m. Central Time. So that'll give everybody a chance to get online, look at them, pick the one you want, and then whenever the bell rings, it's time to get in there and order one fast. We have quite a few people that are wanting particular ones and trying to buy them early, and I get that. But because there's so much demand for these, there's literally only one of each. Each one is unique and different and special and made with love. And so in fairness to everybody, what we do is we release all the images so you can take a look at them and then have a few days to get ready get your money right, get your mind right, whatever you need to do. Um, and so everybody has an equal chance to grab one of those. So if that's something you're interested in, check that out. I'll tell you what, it is all systems go over here at Bikes for Death. I've never put on a bike event, a bike race before. Well, I've done like little, little stuff, but nothing like this. I mean, we got 100 people coming. I've got a guy from Amsterdam. We got people from Canada, all over the United States. And they're all coming to my event, which is awesome. But man, there's a lot more that goes into running an event than you think. And I guess I could just put a map out and a start line and a finish line and all that. But I'm trying to do something a little bit different. I'm trying to bring the community into this ultra uh, endurance racing, this um, you know bike pack racing. I want to I want to try to make it 
two things with this event. One, more accessible, the shorter rides allows for people who work a lot, people who have kids, just your, you know, average people that have to work and do all these things maybe can't train for a 500, 1,000, 2,000 mile race, whatever it may be. So, you know, the shorter race really opens up the door, I think, to a lot more people making it way more accessible, hopefully. And then we also have the showdown route that's a little bit longer, but it's that perfect distance to where people are going to be, the fast people are going to be pushing it, no sleep, no sleeping gear, going super light and throwing down some super fast time. So that's one thing I'm looking forward to is seeing how everybody approaches uh, these routes differently. And I'm really looking forward to seeing everybody on the start line. Right now, the event is completely sold out. I say sold out, it's a free event, um, but it's all booked up. Um, we have started a waiting list. I know I actually just got an email a few minutes ago from somebody that says they're going to be able, they're not going to be able to make it. Somebody else said that they're going to be having to go to help their family when, in Louisiana um, because obviously there's a lot of destruction there and they're going to have to help with the rebuild or the cleanup and the rebuild efforts that are going on there. While we're at it, why don't we send some positive vibes to our friends over there in Louisiana? They got hit hard. And uh, yeah, just wishing everybody the best. And uh, hopefully you'll be back up and running ASAP and better than ever. I think the only other piece of housekeeping that I have is that we do have some cute little stickers there in the Bikes for Death store. They're pro slow stickers. It's a cute little turtle with sunglasses on and uh, just putting out the message that, uh, well, what I've been, the song, actually, I sing this song all the time. It's by Simon and Garfunkel, but it's slow down. You move too fast. You gotta make that moment last. Just kicking down the cobblestones, looking for fun and feeling groovy. Do -do 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 -do. Feeling groovy. Now I can't sing, but I love those lyrics. Slow down, you move too fast. You got to make that moment last. And uh, that's what Pro Slow is all about. It's not always about going fast. So if you want to rep that Pro Slow lifestyle, you can check those cute little stickers out over at the web store. And lastly, I want to remind you that this past week on the Bikes or Death After Party episode, we had Andrew Onerma as our guest. And it was a excellent episode, if I may say so myself. And a lot of things have happened since the last time we talked. So it was really great to catch up with him. And while we were on the live call, I asked him if he would come to the showdown. And, and basically, I don't know if I, I don't think I forced him. He wanted to come, but I uh, kind of put him on the spot. But he said yes, he registered, and he is coming. So when I'm talking about people coming out to the East Texas showdown and laying down a fast time, he's one that you might want to look out for. So um, yeah, if you want to listen to that podcast episode and you're a patron, hop online. It's available for you now. If you're not a patron already, you can find out how to sign up over at patreon.com forward slash bikes or death. And then you'll have access to all future after party episodes. And you'll also have access to all the previous episodes that we've done. So if that's something you're interested in, or you just want to support the show and say thanks for the effort, that's how to do it. 
All right, everybody, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for all the love and support. Now go ride your damn bike. You load up your bike, you ride away from home. You could be with your friends or you could be alone. You ride for a day or maybe more. You just love being in the great outdoors. Everything you need is strapped to your bars, including that new pillow you got from Santa Claus. And then you think, oh shit to yourself. You let that super lightweight tent on the living room shelf. Bikes, 